Don't start something that you're not going to finish. Be committed. Don't spread yourself too thin. You got to do it by the book and you have to have this hard work commitment. Hard work and preparation is the only way you're going to have success in the practice of law. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Our guest today is a partner in the litigation and real estate departments at Phillips Neiser. He is a certified civil trial attorney by the New Jersey Supreme Court and a court-qualified mediator, serving as a court-appointed attorney, guardian, special master, and special fiscal agent. He is also a member of the New Jersey Supreme Court Committee on Women in the Courts, which provides education to law students, the bench, and bar on gender and LGBTQ issues. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, Scott Bakarski. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited that we got to finally do this interview together. Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Love the enthusiasm. This is great. So Scott, as you may or may not know, I like to start the podcast off with a little gratitude. So if you can tell me, what is your favorite moment so far today? My favorite moment, I guess, is seeing and interacting with you. I love people. I'm a people person. We've now adapted to this new platform of Zoom, but it's now, what, over two years? And it's kind of natural, and it serves the purpose. Agreed. We can do justice like the Jetsons. Like the Jetsons. I love it. <laughs> you know, I just heard George Jetson would have been born right now. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. I had a professor in college back in the early 80s say, I predict that someday you'll be able to walk down the street with a wireless phone and talk to your relatives in California. And we were like, really? Wow. Are you kidding? So, you know, these futuristic people, they've got their finger on the pulse and us lawyers, hopefully we're as good as some of those folks. Scott, I'd like to just start from the beginning. Did you always want to be a lawyer? No, my family always had small businesses. I worked in my family's businesses. My dad was a dental technician. He had a dental laboratory. He made crowns, bridges, caps, things like that. I did deliveries for him. My brother, way back when, had a bike store, an infant furniture store. And I was a worker from the age of 14 on. I was always working. And I loved it. I enjoyed it. And I said, I'm going to go to college, get a business degree, maybe go get an MBA. But I took one or more law courses in college, and it just sparked this great interest. And I was always kind of intrigued by the law. It's funny, my high school in New Jersey always did a Memorial Day kind of event, a softball event to raise money for the local mental health center. And I forgot what it was that we were doing. I think we were transporting some money. I was in the car, I was driving, I got pulled over by a local cop, didn't care what we were doing, wrote me a ticket, and ultimately had to go to municipal court with my dad. And I actually landed up myself cross-examining the testifying cop. And I said, this is really cool. I'm really intrigued by all of this. And then, of course, once I had that law course in college, I said, you know, I think I want to go to law school. And what doubly made it something I wanted to do, there was something years ago called the Cornell Law School Pre-Law Program. They advertised it in the New York Times and you had to apply and get accepted. And you went in residence up in Ithaca at Cornell Law School and you took two law courses, Socratic Method, case books and all that. You lived up there for six weeks. I got admitted. I went through the program. Most lawyers and 
law graduate said, you're a lunatic because why would you want to put yourself through that before you have to? My response was, I don't want to waste my parents' money. I know they work hard for the money and I know we may borrow some money, but I'm not going to waste their money, start up law school and then quit. I want to make sure that this is something I'm going to want to do and that's going to benefit all of us. And you know what? I did this amazing program with these amazing people. It was scary as hell, but the social activity that we had that summer was marvelous. And I said, I want to go to law school. And that's what I did. All right. So a few questions. When you were cross-examining this police officer who pulled you over, did you win the case? Unfortunately, I think we landed up losing and landed up probably paying something. We knew people in town. I grew up in town. And someone in government had said to my dad, oh, don't worry about it. You know, I'll be down there that night. Wink, wink. You know, it's no big deal. And of course, he was nowhere to be found. He wasn't there to assist me. And I was on my own. But it gave me greater intrigue. Like, if God forbid it happens again, what do I do? How do I prepare? You know, it was a rough, dry run, but really sparked my interest. Yeah, I love how you had this experience. And I almost like that you didn't win. Like you said, it really made you think deeply about what could I have done and how do I learn more about that? Exactly. And then the other question I had was this pre-law program. You know, there are many attorneys that I talk to, both still practicing today or not practicing anymore, that have said that they went into law school really not knowing much about what law school would be like or what a lawyer would be like, and that there should have been more due diligence on their part to better understand that concept. What do you think allowed you to have that foresight to test out those waters in this program before going all in? You know, my mother always said, may she rest in peace, don't start something that you're not going to finish. Be committed. Don't spread yourself too thin. And mind you, my folks were not college educated. They were depression babies. And even though my mother skipped a year of high school, she was so smart. My father came back from Korea and my grandparents, you know, lost their house in the depression. Everybody lost everything. So the mentality is going to college is a luxury for kids. You need to find a trade a profession, you need to go to work. So that's what you did. And my folks were, even though they weren't formally educated and didn't go to college, they were prolific readers, avid readers. And I was encouraged from the youngest age to read the local newspaper, the New York Times, the Sunday newspapers. That would be an event on Sunday morning. We'd get bagels and we'd get the papers. And it'd probably be a three-hour event of reading newspapers, having breakfast, chatting around the table. I started, you know, reading the New York Times at a very young age, the education section I always read, and I saw this program advertised. They said, apply. Look, we'll borrow some more money with the guaranteed student loan program. And if you want to go, you'll go. And it was a very selective program. Not everyone got admitted. I did very well in college. I'll be honest. I goofed around in high school. I wasn't a good student. I had capability, but I did commit myself. I got to college and I killed it and I did really well. What was pretty scary was the fact that the kids that got into the program were mostly from the Ivy League. So it was a little bit intimidating with the academic challenge there, but I passed everything and I got college credits also. It really, you know, lit a fire in my belly that this is what I want to do. I don't care where I get into law school, I'm going. And if it's not the school that I really want, I'll do well and then I'll transfer. So that's how it happened. It's funny, I see a lot of parallels with your story and mine in the sense that I also goofed off a lot in high school. But when I hit college, it was a whole new ball game. Learning became really fun and inspired me so much. I did not get into the law school that I originally wanted to get into, but I did go for one year and then transferred. So I did do that path. So I get it. And it's like really just 
knowing what you want and making sure that regardless of what barriers are set in your way, that you're going to get it done. Absolutely. Did you know what kind of law you wanted to practice at that time? I really didn't. I think if my mother were here chatting with us, she'd say, yeah, you were going to be a corporate lawyer, or a business lawyer. And I think a big function of what you do is where you can find work. So I went to Seton Hall Law School in Newark, and I was lucky enough to get hired by a solo practitioner. He did plaintiff personal injury, plaintiff med mail real estate, you name it, he did it. He was like a general practitioner. In my second year, my first really good clerkship was with an insurance defense firm. And I really loved it. The work was very interesting, very diverse. And so I landed up, you know, doing insurance defense work at two firms for, oh God, about 16 years. So that was really my foundation. And that's where I got like a boatload of jury trial and bench trial experience. What was your next move after that? I mean, I started out cutting my teeth on auto cases and slip and fall, but I ended that part of my career defending physicians in medical malpractice cases, defending lawyers in malpractice cases, and a variety of other things. But then it was sort of time to go out on my own. The last firm was winding up after many years. First, I was with a buddy from law school and we did our thing locally. He did a lot of government work and I did still some insurance defense, but one of my other niches has been representing condos, co-ops and homeowner associations. And I started to really develop the legal malpractice into ethics, professional responsibility, fee arbitration. I started representing lawyers in ethics matters, and I started doing more of expert reports in malpractice cases, which I do a lot of. The practice was very busy. My partner didn't want to hire more help. And I know from 16 years of working in some successful firms, you only make money with more lawyers. You need more billers. Otherwise, we're never going to grow and make more money. So I then opened my own practice uh, in 07. And we went full speed ahead till November of 2019. I had four associates, five in staff, very successful. But I said, you know, I'm doing everything. I'm bringing in the work. I'm working on it. I'm billing it. I'm supervising all these people. It's just too much. And that's when I said, you know what? Maybe I can get more help through a merger. And November of 19, I merged Pekarsky and Associates into Philip Snyzer, which is a New York City LLP that's been around since 1926, started by the renowned Louis Snyzer, one of the greatest trial lawyers to ever exist. Just an amazing firm with an amazing culture started by him and uh, Mr. Phillips. So that was the next step. That must have been an interesting time in your life to take something that you've built and was growing and so successful and then make the decision to merge with someone else. Talk to me about that decision-making process. It's a very complicated, emotional, financially driven, somewhat risky kind of thing to do. But I knew the reputation of the Phillips Neiser firm, and I felt like I would fit in well in that culture. There's so many moving parts. And one of the biggest things was breaking it to my associates and my staff and preparing them for that merge getting them all on board. It was very complex. The day-to-day -day complications of making sure clients are on board, getting a tail policy of malpractice insurance, shutting down the other operation, computer systems, and then bringing this other group to a new setting. It's mind-boggling. It's awesome. And it's incredibly challenging. What makes it even wilder is, so we merge in November 2019. I'm in the middle of a jury trial in early March of 2020. And the judge says, everyone have a great weekend, but I don't know if I'll see you on Monday. 
this pandemic is really picking up and we may not be back here on Monday. She hit it right on the head. We were not back on Monday. We segued into and pivoted into Zoom. My wife was teaching on Zoom. My younger daughter came home with her boyfriend from the city. They were both handling their jobs on Zoom. My older daughter, she was still home, but she was working as a labor and delivery and a NICU nurse. So she was going to work. But we were scared stiff for her because every hospital locally was loaded with COVID. So that one year was just wild and crazy. But I got to say, it was an amazing experience to have this closeness with your kids. And of course, I ate well and ate too much, but it all worked out fine. It really did. What was really interesting as a legal professional, I landed up writing two law review articles one on how to deal with working remotely and ethically during COVID, explaining the ethical nuances and the challenges. And then after I wrote that first article for the Rutgers Business Law Review, the University of Miami Business Law Review picked it up and said, would you please not only lecture for us on this subject, but would you write an article for our law journal? And the masochist I am, I said, what the heck, let's do it. It was a labor of love. It was a tremendous amount of work, but I can't tell you how gratifying it is to have a law review article published. What were some ethical nuances that you discussed that you think still exist today? The security and the ethical part. So, you know, we've got VPNs, we have double authentication, but I may be on a confidential meeting with a client or on a sealed court hearing. I have a duty as a lawyer to maintain confidentiality to maintain what goes on in the attorney-client relationship. And if Alexa is there behind me, Alexa is listening to all of this and reporting it. And third parties are having access to this. So that's one issue. The unauthorized practice of law issue was coming up where many of my partners were at second homes throughout parts of the pandemic. And there's some lawyers out there that would say, wait a second, you're practicing law from your house in the Berkshires and you're not licensed in Massachusetts? That's the unauthorized practice of law. Preserving the data, preserving the material. God forbid you get COVID and you die. How is somebody going to get that preserved material? Are you saving it and protecting it? If God forbid you do die during COVID, what's your succession plan? It's wild. The second article went into stuff like virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and then cryptocurrency. I had lawyer clients calling me. They're like, we've got a great new case, but the guy wants to pay us in cryptocurrency. What's the status of the law and the regs and the ethics rules in New Jersey on this? And I need an answer by tomorrow morning. So really cool, interesting stuff that I love working on that I'm going to continue to write and lecture on. But I guess the latest topic and what I'm going to be doing a lot in the area is attorney wellness. We really need to talk more about wellness. And my mantra is kindness, passion, and grit, and that's how you're going to have success. But unfortunately, we've really not paid close attention to wellness of law students, wellness of lawyers, and we really haven't paid close attention to the wellness of judges and their staff. And we need to do a lot more in that regard. I've unfortunately had a lot of health issues starting in 2013 up to the present date. So I'm really sensitive to it. And I think it's been neglected for much too long. And we need to talk about it. And we need to really move the dime on that topic. I am so glad to see you talking about this, to see so many others being vulnerable and sharing their stories and talking about how important it is 
And I liked how you broke it down, wellness for law students, for lawyers, for judges and staff. I think that there's a lot of discussion around wellness for lawyers, but I see less discussion about wellness for law students and wellness for judges and what two important parts of the system that we need to make sure we address. And I just read an article, it may have been an ABA publication or elsewhere, but the stats on young law students with problems and anxieties. And of course, I'm the first one to say to clients and family members, friends, if you need psychological help, don't be embarrassed. We're human and it's there and it's available to you. You talked deeply about how Philip Snyder has a culture that you felt like you could align with really well. We're also talking about a culture of wellness. Tell me about the culture at Philip Snyder. Why do you like it so much? And why do you feel like it's aligned with who you are? Everybody is real. They're human. They're friendly. There's a synergy. It's all for the common good. We're all part of the same team. We refer stuff back and forth and we give names and referrals and we help each other out. And this is a constant thing from day one. I've had this constant interaction with colleagues and it's wonderful. It seems as though you hold a lot of reverence for Nizer specifically. Oh my God. Yeah. It seems as though his leadership really kind of emanates still throughout the entire firm. Yeah. He was truly a Renaissance man. There have been very few people that have reached the levels he has. There's like an American trial lawyers hall of fame. And there's a very small group of people in there, including Thurgood Marshall and Clarence Darrow. Well, Louis Neiser is one of the few people in there. He had a passion and a love for the law. He felt that proper preparation was perspiration and really killing it for trial was working through the night, literally staying in the office all night, staying in the law library all night and burning the midnight oil to be ready in the morning. He'd be the first one to cancel a vacation, a trip, an anniversary party, even for himself, because he had to pick a jury on Monday. And he had other interests. I mean, he was a musician. He was a painter. He was a writer. He was also athletic. And he won this tennis tournament in the Motion Picture Club. So he seemed like someone that had a lot of interests, had a lot of creativity, was very dedicated to his practice and to his cases. One thing that I'd like you to maybe help me understand, like how you take these two things and put them together is we talk about lawyers, including Neiser, who were up through the night, burning the midnight oil, canceling vacations, putting their cases and their clients ahead of themselves. At the same time, we're talking about culture and wellness and people being able to mm-hmm. practice in a way that's healthy. How do you meld those two things today? I know practice a long time ago was a different time, but how does that kind of translate today? You know, that's truly a gift. And that really sets the best and the elite from the others. I mean, to be able to finesse that and balance it, but it takes a lot of skill and talent to say, okay, it's now time to have dinner. It's now time to clear my head. And it truly takes a little bit of selfishness, maybe selflessness to say, look, I got to worry about myself and my family. And there's a time and a place for everything. I practiced this a long time ago before the pandemic. I'd go home for dinner. I'd go upstairs to my bedroom. I'd change. I'd put my cell phone on the charger and I'd go downstairs and have dinner with my wife and my girls. And If people complain to me later, I was trying to get you at 6.30 on a call, I'd be very clear about it. When I come home for dinner with my family, the phone goes in another room. We have important talk and chat and liveliness, and we have a meal together. 
And then after dinner, I can deal with the emergencies. We as lawyers, we need to learn how to divide and separate that. And we come first, our health comes first, and that's it. Our health comes first, and that's my mantra. Your health comes first. The judge that I clerked for back 35 years ago said, your health comes first, your family comes first. That trial will happen. It'll happen another day and another week, but you're most important. We really need to learn that. We need to preach it and practice it that, oh, you know, that doctor's appointment will happen at another time. Well, no, if that's the only time to get in for that cardiac evaluation now, and otherwise you got to wait a month, I'm sorry. Let the doctor's appointment happen and we'll start the trial a little bit later. I think that it's very important what you're saying. And I think as a partner in a law firm, you've definitely have the experience and the comfort, let's say, to be in a firm where you can make those decisions. How do you help others on your team, other people who might not feel as comfortable or might feel like it might reflect badly on them? How do you help them come to those decisions? So it's mentoring and it's working with me. One of the beauties is we come together, we talk about stuff. We went through it this morning. We had a lawyer call and say, we've got a trial date on the such and such case. What are you thinking? Is it going to go? Is it not going to go? Are you going to ask for an adjournment? Are you ready to go? And then I said to my team, is it Zoom? Is it in person? And most importantly, the client must be respected. He wants it to go as soon as it can go. But I'm going through some health issues now. And if it's going to be in person, I don't know if I can do it. But if I can't, I'm going to need part of my team to come with me to court. Having a little bit of a dizziness issue right now and to hop in the car, race to the courthouse, jump out of the car, get through the metal detector, up the elevator and be ready to roll at 8.30 or 9 o'clock is going to be a challenge for me. So we're already talking and preparing. And for my newest of associates, he's learning. We're explaining how you deal with these kinds of challenges and issues. I don't put somebody out you know, to the fire. I help them and embrace them to meet those challenges. Yeah, it seems to me that you're very open with your own challenges and your own struggles and your own health issues. I am. I think that's a real great leadership by example, showing people that you can trust your team and let them know what's going on so that everyone can work together to help create the best situation for your team as well as for the client. What does leadership in law mean to you? Leadership in law is being kind, being passionate, and working hard. If there was one thing you could change about the legal industry, what would it be? I guess it would be this allegiance to statistics and numbers and data and not worrying about the statistics and the data, but just like a fine wine. Sometimes you have to wait till a fine wine is ready to drink. Some cases are just not yet ready. And if the parties and their lawyers are not yet ready, let's not force them out to trial. Let's wait till everyone's ready. What do you mean by that? Like as far as allegiance to stats data, what's the correlation? I'm missing it. So, you know, the courts are very sensitive to the fact of moving cases and numbers and not having cases in backlog and following schedules and we're ready to go and let's pick the jury. Jersey differs a bit from New York. New York, basically, you don't dock it until you're ready. Jersey's the opposite. You file, you serve, you're full speed ahead. And when you're basically at the point where there's a trial, you got to go. And sometimes both sides are not ready. The client may be having a surgery. The lawyer may have a prepaid vacation. Allow it to be in such a way that everybody's ready and then let's do it. So yeah, just a pet peeve. More flexibility. Yes. What is something people misunderstand about the work that you do? 
they maybe misunderstand the business model and how it works. For example, in some serious plaintiff's work, you're going to have to fund these cases. You're going to have to lay out money. You may have a line of credit for it. At the end of the day, it may not be as profitable as you think. And the law has become such a specialty. I used to say I was a country lawyer and I did everything. And I did. You could no longer do everything by virtue of the developments in the law and the complications and the time element to it. So, you know. What is a piece of practical advice for our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders in law who are looking to follow your lead. Being kind to people, being polite, being courteous. It's always worked really well for me. I never thrived with book throwers or screamers. Maybe some people do, but I would say most people don't. If you want to be a great success, you have to have some level of passion. You really have to enjoy it and love it. And some 35 years later, I still love it. I have a passion for it. It's exciting. It's fun. You need to be kind. You need to have the passion, but you'll learn shortcuts. I learned a lot of shortcuts over 35 years, but as a young lawyer, according to Hoyle, you got to do it by the book and you have to have this hard work commitment. Hard work and preparation is the only way you're going to have success in the practice of law. Who was someone who really shaped your journey in life? My folks, uh, you know, most definitely did. They had a work ethic. They worked hard to exist. Their families lost everything in the Depression. They knew the value of education, which they never got the benefit of. My mom skipped a year in high school and went right to work as a legal secretary. So she was an inspiration. My dad, after coming back from Korea on the front line, he went right to work. He was a paraprofessional. And I knew that Working hard and committing yourself and treating people well and kindly would bring success. And I knew that if I worked my tail off and I committed myself and I was kind and good to other people, it would work. And one of the things I learned along the way that everybody needs to understand, you may want everyone to be your friend, but it's not going to happen. You know, there's different personalities. Not everybody's going to love you, but it's okay. You know, you don't have to be friendly with everyone. You don't have to love everybody. They don't all have to love you, but you need to respect everyone and they need to respect you. That's critical. Wonderful. Final question. What do you do for self-care? Finally, after 35 years of practice, I'm watching my diet. I'm eating a healthy, reasonable meal for breakfast as well for lunch. Most nights I'm home for dinner and I'm also eating well. I'm exercising. And I always go for my yearly and regular doctor's appointments, and I'm very in tune with my health and the health of others around me. And I preach it, and I hope that others take it as seriously, because if you want to have a meaningful, fantastic life and career, you're not going to do it if you're not healthy. And mental health and physical health is really critical to be successful in whatever field you're going to go into. Excellent advice. Thank you so much, Scott, for being here today. If someone wanted to connect with you, what is the best way they can do so? The Philip Snyzer website, I have a bio there. My phone number's there. My email is there. I'm pretty good about getting back to people within a day or so. And I consider myself a mentor and a thought leader and uh, I'm readily accessible. I'm always here. That's wonderful, Scott. And someone that's known Scott for many years, I can absolutely attest that you are definitely a person that's always there to be a friendly voice with great guidance. So I really appreciate all that you do. Thank you again for being on the show. Thank you for those kind words. It was my pleasure. I enjoyed it. 
Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with over 1,000 verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers who lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.